I understand Pastor Eric has been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and so this afternoon we'll be looking at what comes before the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. We're really seeking to focus our hearts and minds on our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this passage that we're going to be looking at this afternoon, it's at the very beginning of our Lord Jesus' earthly ministry. He's been for 30 years in obscurity. The world had not known that He was the Messiah. And He steps out of the shadows, as it were, into the public eye. What occurs right before this passage uh, is where He is baptized in the beginning of His public ministry. And this passage sets the tone for his entire ministry. It reveals what kind of Messiah Jesus is, what kind of King Jesus truly is. So I want to start actually backing it up a little bit in verse 13 of chapter 3 uh, for his baptism. And we'll read through chapter 4, verse 11. Hear now God's holy word. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they shall bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Amen. Let us pray together again briefly. Our Lord, as we come to your holy word, our prayer is that we would see Jesus, that we would see you, that we would know you, that we would be transformed by your truth. So, Lord, open our eyes, give us spiritual eyes to see you in your glory, and help us then to receive this word, this truth of who you are, 
as our great and glorious King, that we would continue to serve you faithfully, bowing the knee before you to serve you the whole of our lives. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If you've ever studied great literature, you know that one of the themes in literature is the battle, the epic battle between good and evil. And in many good stories, you have that battle clearly laid out. Uh, Epic battles uh, or epic stories have this long, drawn-out kind of struggle. Maybe you're familiar with things like The Lord of the Rings and that great story then of, on the one hand, the evil of Sauron and of the power of the rings and those kinds of things versus uh, those who would follow the king. Or maybe you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's stories, The Chronicles of Narnia, and they also have this great battle between good and evil clearly portrayed. Sometimes these battles happen where you have a representative come to represent their army fight against the representative of the opposing army. This happens in the story Prince Caspian, if you've ever read that. And in that story, there are the two armies, that of of Narnia, represented by Prince Caspian, and then those uh, from the foreign lands with King Miraz. And instead of having their armies fight, they had both King Peter come, and then also Miraz. And they fought together, representing each other's armies. Well, this is not just something that happens in great literature. This is also something that we see in the Bible. For example, you remember what happened with David and Goliath. Goliath came out representing the Philistine army and said, if you have someone willing from your armies to represent your armies, let him come and fight me. And as we know, it was David, trusted in the Lord, who fought for the honor and glory of his God and bested Goliath. Well, today... When we look at this passage this afternoon, Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11, what we have is the greatest battle in all of human history taking place between two great champions. The great battle between good and evil fought not just in a fictional story, but in history, in the history of our world. And what occurs in this passage is that on the one hand, you have Jesus who is the champion of his people. Jesus has just been baptized, and part of what baptism means is that he is identifying himself as the representative of his people, that he is the second Adam who's come to represent them. And then it also is a picture that he has been anointed by the Holy Spirit to enter into this work on behalf of his people. And he's even declared by God the Father to be my beloved son, as we read. In the other corner of this great battle is Satan, the great adversary. And he is one who is the enemy of God, the enemy of all mankind, and the enemy of all that is good. And so they come together. These two antagonists meet to do battle in a great conflict in a great struggle. As we consider then this battle laid out before us, I want us to answer three questions. The first question is this, what kind of struggle is this? What kind of battle is this? 
And the first thing is, it was a real struggle. And what I mean is that this was an event or a conflict that was real. It occurred in space-time history. This is not fiction. This is not a fable. This is not a story that Matthew or the early church made up. But it's in Holy Scripture. This is historical. This really happened. And the genre of Scripture that we're looking at is historical narrative. This is not poetry. This is not a parable. This is not even just a prophetic vision. This is a historical narrative event that took place. It's a real event that could be witnessed. If you were there at that time, you would have seen Jesus. You would have seen the temptations. You would have seen what was going on, heard these things. It took place in the desert. It took place in Jerusalem. It took place on a mountain. Real places. And it was witnessed too by Jesus who was there, by Satan who was there, by angels and demons who saw it, by God himself who has given it to us in his holy word. That means something else. That means that the devil is real. Sadly, many in our day do not think that the devil is a real, personal, powerful being. They think it's just a figment of our imaginations, something that maybe medieval monks made up to scare children. In fact, uh, about 15 years ago, there was a poll taken in the United States. How many people believed that Satan is a real being? And at that time, that was in 2007, 15 years ago, only 24% of those asked in America believe that Satan's a real spiritual being. In fact, that's one of the great masterpieces of Satan in our day, is to make people think that he doesn't exist. That he's just a figment of our imaginations. That he's just some kind of joke. Maybe a, you picture uh, in many cartoons, he's driven with kind of a pitchfork and uh, in this red suit. And that's what people often think. But beloved, Satan is no joke. He is real. He is a powerful, personal, spiritual being. He's a fallen angel. A demon. In fact, he's the head of the demons who seeks to destroy every work of God. Listen to how Scripture describes the devil. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says he's the God of this world who blinds the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Ephesians 2.2, 2, a chapter earlier than what was read, says this. He's the prince of the power of the air who's followed by the sons of disobedience. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says this, Your adversary, the devil, is one who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan is a real being. He has great power. But, you must remember, his power is not unlimited. His power is limited because, though Satan is a spiritual being, he is but a creature. God made him. He does not exist apart from God even sustaining him. He is a creature. And how is he described in our text? There's three words used to describe Satan. You see them there. Verses 3, 5, and 10. Verse 3, he's called the tempter. He's the tempter. He's one who entices us to do evil. In fact, he does it in such a way that he's a disguised one. He uses deception. He's disguised as an angel of light. 
He makes things seem like it would be good for you, profitable. That's how he tempts you. If it didn't seem like something that would be pleasurable or something that you would benefit from, you'd never be tempted by it. But he deceives. He lies to you. He's also called, you notice in verse 5, the devil. Or more literally, he's the accuser. The accuser. You must think of Satan as one who's two-faced. See, on the one hand, he, he tempts you into sin. He says, this will be great. This will be good for you. And then as soon as you sin, he turns around and says, God could never love you. You've just sinned. He accuses you. See, he's two-faced. He's the tempter on one hand, and the next minute, he's the accuser of the brethren. And thirdly, you notice that in verse 10, in verse 10, Jesus says, be gone, Satan. He is called Satan, which means the adversary. He's the enemy of our souls. He seeks our destruction. And here, he seeks the destruction of Jesus to destroy Jesus and the work that Jesus came to do. So we see that this was a, a real event that happened, that Satan is real. We also see that this means that the temptations were real. You see, some people say this, these temptations weren't really uh, a struggle for Jesus. I mean, Scripture says God cannot be tempted with evil. And after all, Jesus was God. Therefore, he wasn't really being tempted. Well, while it is true that Jesus is truly God, we need to remember that Jesus is not only truly God, he's also truly man. And it's in his humanity that he was tempted. Now, Jesus is different from us in this sense. He was born of the Virgin Mary. That means Jesus is a sinless human without a sin nature inherited from Adam. All of us are born in the normal way. We inherit then from our first parents, Adam and Eve, a sinful nature. Jesus didn't have a sinful nature in his humanity. Therefore, he could not be like you and I are, lured and enticed by his own sinful desires, because Jesus didn't have any sinful desires. But he was truly human. He is truly human. He's still human. Human without sin, a sin nature, but human with all the weaknesses, all the frailty that that entails. In other words, he could feel hungry. He could also fear pain. He could feel weary and tired. He could long for peace as he's walking in this fallen, sinful world. Thus, though Jesus' humanity was sinless and undefiled, he is able to be tempted in a way similar that sinless Adam before the fall was able to be tempted. He didn't at that time have a sin nature. Adam was created good. He was created perfect in that sense, and yet he could be tempted. In that same sense, Jesus is able to be tempted. So these temptations were real temptations that Jesus truly felt in his humanity, and he had to stringently fight against them and resist them by the power of the Spirit with the Word of God. But you know, beloved, that means something else. If these temptations were real, then Jesus' triumph was real as well. And that's good news indeed.
So we've seen that as we consider this question, what kind of struggle is this? It's a real struggle. But I also want you to see something else about this struggle. This struggle is a divinely designed struggle. It's divinely designed. Notice what verse 1 of chapter 4 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus was led up by the Spirit. In other words, this encounter with Satan was no accident or happenstance. Jesus didn't just accidentally stumble upon Satan. No, this was part of his Father's plan, part of the pathway sovereignly marked out for him by his Heavenly Father. You see, the same Spirit that rested upon Jesus in his baptism to empower him and to equip him for his earthly ministry is the very same Spirit that leads and guides him throughout his whole ministry on the earth. And where does the Spirit lead Jesus? Into the wilderness to be tempted. It's an important lesson for you and me to remember that you can be right where God wants you to be and trial and temptation are right there too. In other words, don't think that because you are facing trials or because you're facing temptations that it necessarily means that you're not doing what God would have you to do. As I said this morning, some say that if you become a Christian, all your problems and all your trials will just go away. The prosperity gospel and all these things that are not true. No. God's will for Christians is that we face trials. Is that we have to face temptations. You remember what James says at the beginning. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet with trials of various kinds. Not if you meet with trials, but when. All of God's children will face trials and temptations that come in the midst of those trials or at other times. So, dear Christian, you can take great comfort in this, that because you know your sovereign God is the one who ordains all things, He has ordained even your trials for your good, for good purposes. And He promises to be with you in the midst of those trials and even in the midst of those temptations that you face. You are not alone. So, this is a divinely designed encounter, divinely designed struggle. But the question is this, what is the Father's good purpose in having the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? What purpose could He have? And here's where I want you to recognize, there in verse 1, where you have the word tempted by the devil. Uh, the Greek word is also translated in our ESV translation here at times as the word test or prove. So the word tempted can also be translated test or prove. Why do you test something? Test something to prove the true value or quality of it. So for example, when something is manufactured or made before it goes to market, most companies have a quality assurance tester who tests the product to make sure it's of good quality before it goes to market. Or, uh, for example, you can think of diamonds. Diamonds uh, can be either 
you know, when you get a diamond ring, you, you want it to be a real diamond. The genuine article. There's a cubic zir zirconium. That's not a real diamond. So you want to make sure, especially if you're going to go give it to your fiancé or hope to be your fiancé, you want it to be a real diamond. What do you do? A real diamond can scratch glass. For cubic zirconium, cannot. So you could test, is this a real diamond, by running along glass. Does it scratch or does it not? You test to prove that it really is what it claims to be. Well, in a real sense, that's what God is doing here. God's design, God's purpose is to test in order to prove that Jesus really is God's Son, that He is the true Son of God. So it is to test, to prove, to show that Jesus is whom God Himself just declared Him to be. You are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now this is a test designed to show the world that that's the case. Now let's remember, as James tells us, God does not tempt anyone. He doesn't, that is, he doesn't entice them to sin, but God does test us. He tests us to see what's in our hearts. So that's God's purpose. His purpose in leading his son to be tempted by Satan is to test in order to prove who he really is. Satan has a different purpose. Satan's purpose is to tempt Jesus in order to get him to sin, to get him to fall, to get him to fail, so that no one could ever be saved. Now, here's an amazing truth you need to remember. That our sovereign God is able to take what men or Satan intend for evil and use it for good. Isn't that amazing? Our God is so powerful that what you or I or someone else or Satan even intends for evil, God ordains for good purposes. You see this in other places in Scripture. Perhaps one of the clearest examples in the Old Testament is with Joseph and his brothers. You remember how his brothers hated Joseph. They hated Joseph because he was the favorite of their father, Jacob. And so when they had the opportunity, they wanted to kill him. But one of their brothers talked them out of killing him. But instead, what did they do? They sold him as a slave to the Ishmaelites coming by so that he was taken down into Egypt. Their intention was evil towards Joseph. But it was all part of God's ordained plan. His plan that Joseph would go to Egypt so that through Joseph, whom he will, yes, humble and humiliate to the point of being in prison, will be exalted to second in command so that his own brothers and their families would be saved from the famine that was going to come. And at the end of their lives, or at the end of when their father Jacob dies, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, this is what Joseph says to his brothers who are afraid that now that Jacob has died, he's going to exact revenge upon them. Joseph assures them that's not the case. And he says this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That reminds us that who is it that has ultimate power? Who is it that has ultimate authority? Not Satan, but God. Thus, God's purpose is to prove what kind of son Jesus is. That's the design behind this 
divinely ordained encounter. But I want to tell you, God's design goes even deeper. See, part of Jesus' work of redemption in coming to the earth is to destroy the work of the devil. And that's seen by noticing the background of this testing of Jesus. The background of Scripture that shows the testing of two previous sons of God. And when you read Scripture, you're to compare Scripture with Scripture. And when you see this testing of Jesus, these other testings of these two other sons of God are to be in your mind. Who's the first son of God? Well, it's Adam. Adam was the first son of God. And that's brought out clearly in Luke's account of this If you were to turn there, we won't, but if you look in Luke chapter 3, you'll notice there's the genealogy of Jesus, and it traces it all the way back from Jesus, all the way down to Adam, and then there's this phrase, Adam, Adam added, Adam the Son of God. Adam was the first Son of God, the first representative of humanity. And as God's Son, He was created to know, to love, to serve God who made Him. To obey His Father, His Heavenly Father. And He was to image His Heavenly Father, to do what His Heavenly Father had done in a a reflected way. That is, He was to, to form the earth like God did by subduing the earth. That is, he was to expand the borders of the Garden of Eden to cause, which this is the temple of God, and as it were, to, to cover the whole earth. And he's also with Eve uh, to, to fill the earth with other image bearers to worship and, and adore God. Now, at the out, outset of his work, God tested Adam. He said to him, you may eat of every tree in the garden except for one. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the question then was, what kind of son would Adam be? Would he obey his heavenly father? Would he love his father? Would he trust his father? Or would he be a disobedient son? Faithful or faithless? Obedient or disobedient? We all know what happened. Adam and Eve yielded to Satan's temptation, and they failed the test. They brought the curse of sin and death upon us all, and they were cast out of the garden. But now, what we have is the second Adam, also called the last Adam, Jesus. And Jesus comes not to a garden, but he goes into the wilderness, the place of cursing. And as part of his work to redeem and restore what was lost and broken by the first Adam, He goes there. Sinclair Ferguson writes this, Adam turned the garden into a wilderness, and Jesus has gone into the wilderness to replant the garden of God. Jesus, the promised seed of the woman, comes to crush the serpent's head. And Jesus is seeking to do that here, even in the midst of these temptations. What's the other son of God? We've seen that there's Adam, but there's another son of God in Scripture. Have you ever noticed, if you're in Matthew chapter 2, there in verse 14 it says, 
And he rose, this is Joseph, he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. In the original context, this is a quote from Hosea. That's referring to the nation of Israel. Out of Egypt I called my son. If you read through the book of Exodus, you come to Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, where God calls Israel, the nation, his son, saying to Pharaoh, you will go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let my son go. Israel, as a nation, was then the second son of God, we could say. You see, they have this experience, right, where they are redeemed out of Egypt. They have to go through the wilderness. They have 40 years within the desert because of their disobedience and rebellion against God. You'll also note that where does Jesus quote from in this passage? He quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, which was written while Israel was in the wilderness. Part of what Matthew is showing us is that Jesus comes as the greater Israel. But Israel then was this second son of God. God redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. He's called his firstborn son. Israel then as a nation was to be a faithful son. That is, they were to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests who love, obey, and serve, and worship God, who live as a light to those surrounding nations. And at the outset of the covenant with them, when they go to Israel or to Mount Sinai, he enters into covenant with them. And at the outset, God tests them in the wilderness. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8 tells us that they're in the wilderness so that God could test them to see what is in their hearts. What kind of son would Israel be? Would they be faithful? Would they obey? And the answer is no, they would not. They also fail like Adam failed. They failed repeatedly. Not just that first generation, but generation after generation after generation. They did not believe God their Father until God said one day, you've broken faith with me so long that I am going to be faithful to my covenant promises to bring the covenant curses upon you. The greatest of those curses is to send you into exile. And that's what happened to Israel. They were an unfaithful son. Now, here in Matthew 4, now the true son, the true Israel has come, Jesus. And he goes into the wilderness, the place of Israel's failure. And there's a sense in which he's retracing the steps of Israel, but he obeys where they disobey. Jesus has come to be the true king, the true priest, the one who makes a truly holy nation to be the one that does this through his great work of redeeming his people. So you see God's greater design. His great purpose is this, 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The work of the devil was to ensnare humanity and sin. Jesus comes to redeem us, to free us from sin and the curse of the law. In other words, 
as Jesus is being led by the Spirit into the wilderness, the picture you need to have is that Jesus isn't on the defensive. Jesus is on the offensive. Jesus is on the attack. He is in a search and destroy mission to destroy Satan and the works of Satan. But he's not going to succeed by his own bravado. He's not going to succeed by his own pride like kings of this earth. He's going to succeed through humility and through obedience to his heavenly Father. So that's the kind of struggle this is. It's a real struggle designed by God to prove what kind of son Jesus is and to destroy the works of the devil. That's the long answer to our short question, what kind of struggle is this? But the question then is this, does Jesus actually succeed? What kind of son is he? Will he fail like Adam? Will he fail like Israel? Or will he succeed to the glory of his father and the good of his people that he represents? And so that's our second big question. What kind of son is this? I have three answers for you. What kind of son is this? Jesus is the son who obeys God's word, not his own appetites. Jesus is a son who obeys God's word, not his own appetites. You see, Satan comes to Jesus when he is hungry. After he's fasted for 40 days and nights. Think about that. That's like you not eating again until October 21st. Are you ready for that? <laughs> you know, Imagine how hungry you would be if you did not eat until October 21st. Well, that's what Jesus' situation was. He had not eaten for 40 days. His humanity was certainly feeling that hunger. And in that, Jesus, uh, Satan comes and says, If you are the Son of God, verse 3, Command these stones to become bread. Now certainly Jesus in his humanity felt the weight of that temptation by the hunger he was feeling. But let's understand what's really going on here. What is the sin that Satan is trying to entice Jesus to commit? In other words, what's wrong with Jesus turning a few boulders into baguettes? Right? After all, earlier or not much after this, he's going to go to a wedding and he's going to turn water into wine. That wasn't a sin, was it? Or later, he'll take a few loaves and fishes and multiply them and feed thousands. So what's the sin in this temptation? It's not in the miracle itself. It's not the miracle itself would be wrong, but it's what performing that miracle at this time would mean. Satan, you see, is seeking to get Jesus to doubt his father's love for him. He's seeking to get Jesus to doubt his father's care and provision. This is what Satan is really saying. Your father's forgotten about you, Jesus. Yeah, you're the son of God, and, and you're about to starve to death? What kind of father lets his children starve? Why wait? Why suffer? You're about to die. Make these stones bread. Satisfy your hunger. You can do it. You're the son of God after all, right? See, he's tempting Jesus to take matters into his own hands. 
to use his divine power to relieve his human suffering. This would be to doubt God's word. You see, for Jesus, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. This was God's will that he do this. His Father's will was for Jesus to fast, and he was to wait upon his Father to provide for him. But Satan wants him to doubt what the Father is doing. It's interesting, Satan uses this very same tactic with Eve in the garden. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What's he doing? He's trying to get her to doubt God's word to her and God's care for her. God's trying to withhold something good from you. God doesn't really care for you. If he really cared for you, he'd let you eat this tree too. You see the temptation. Israel fell to this temptation in the wilderness. When they were hungry, what did they do? They grumbled against God. They complained against God. They did not trust God. They said this in Exodus 16, verse 3. You brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They doubt God's word. They doubt God's care. They doubt God's provision, His promise to provide for them in the wilderness and to bring them into the promised land. But don't we hear that temptation as well? Don't you feel that temptation at times? In the midst of sickness, does it really care about you? If he did, he wouldn't let you get sick. Satan whispers in your ear. In the midst of difficult financial times, maybe you've lost a job. See, God's not providing for you. Or when your loneliness, you you. you do, you don't have the kind of fellowship that you long for. You've had a falling out with a, a Christian brother or sister even. Satan whispers, God doesn't care. He's not going to provide. You need to take matters into your own hands. You need to provide for yourself. And we're tempted to provide for legitimate needs in illegitimate ways by sinning against God instead of trusting God. But Jesus does not yield to that temptation. Jesus responds. Notice verse 4. What does he say? It is written. He comes with the sword of the Spirit. He comes with the Word of God. And he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's important to note that Jesus is not merely quoting Scripture here. He's actually living it. He hasn't eaten bread for 40 days. He knows that he's sustained by God's Word. What is Jesus saying? He's saying he's learned the lesson that Israel failed to learn, that true life is not ultimately found in material things like food, but in knowing and obeying the Word of God. Jesus is saying this, I trust my Father to provide for me even if it means suffering, hunger, or even if it means death. I still trust my Heavenly Father. That's what Jesus says. He's a son who obeys God's Word, not his own appetites. But what kind of son is this? This is also the son who lives by faith and not by sight. He lives by faith 
and not by sight. In the next temptation, Satan takes Jesus up to Jerusalem to the wing of the temple, the south wing that overlooks the Kidron Valley. It's a drop of several hundred meters. Or maybe that's feet. Sorry, metric. It's a long way down. And what does he say in verse 6? He says, throw yourself down. Throw yourself off. Jump, Jesus. And he supports it with Scripture. He quotes from Psalm 91, uh, verses 11 and 12, where he says there, uh, Scripture says, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, it's quite fascinating. If you read Psalm 91, Satan doesn't keep going. He stops after verse 12. Because the next verse, verse 13, do you know what it says? It says this, You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. (laughs) It's speaking about the crushing of the serpent. Satan doesn't quote that verse. Uh, Now here's an important lesson for us, isn't it? It's the importance of knowing the context of Scripture. Satan here, he's adept at twisting Scripture for his own purposes. He's quoting Scripture, but not the intention of what the Scriptures mean. He's filling his own meaning in it. And so many others in our own culture do that. Those that claim to be Christians, those that claim to be churches, so often maybe they read from the Bible, but they put a different meaning than what the Bible has. They twist the Scriptures. Satan is adept at doing that. Cults are adept at doing that. And beloved, the important lesson is you need to understand Scripture in its context. In the context of the passage that it's in, in the context of the book that it's in, in the context of the whole Bible. Don't rip texts out of their context. That will lead to much harm. But what is Satan getting at with this temptation? Once again, we need to understand what's going on. What's he really tempting Jesus to do? Let me put it this way. He's saying to Jesus, okay, Jesus, all right. You've clearly stated that you're going to trust God and that you're a man of God's word. Well, listen to what God's word says then, Jesus. Prove your great faith by jumping off the temple. You believe God's word, don't you? You believe he's going to take care of you? Why don't you be certain of God's care? Why don't you strengthen your faith in God's care by jumping off the temple into the arms of angels like the Bible says? This is a lie of Satan. Because what he's asking Jesus to do would not be an act of faith, but an act of presumption. Presumptuous unbelief. You see, if you really believe God, you really believe what his word says. You really believe that God will protect you. You don't need to test God to make sure that he will do what he says. You're going to test him if you don't really believe it. Sadly, that's exactly what Israel did in the wilderness, isn't it? Scripture says that they tested the Lord at Meribah. Exodus chapter 17. The Israelites had no water. So what do they do again? 
They grumble and complain. Now, God had given them manna. He had given them manna from heaven by this point. He's given them quail to eat by this point. But they still grumble and complain, and they demanded Moses do a miracle to provide water and prove that God was still with them. They didn't trust God. They put God to the test because they were unbelieving. They did not live by faith, but by sight. They had to see it in order to believe it. They followed the saying, seeing is believing. Well, that's not biblical. That's not Christian. And sadly, beloved, we fall into the same temptation at times, don't we? Lord, I'll trust you if you show yourself faithful by providing me this woman for my wife. By providing me this particular job. By getting me out of this jam. You do that for me, then I'll trust you. Lord, I'll believe in you if you only give me this evidence. That's what a lot of the scientists, the unbelieving, ungodly scientists, Richard Dawkins and others, say things like this. If there was just this evidence, then I would believe. It's really just a statement of unbelief. But Jesus did not yield to this temptation. Notice his response there in verse 7. Again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This time he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, and he shows its true interpretation. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It's not a contradiction in that sense. He sees through the devil's scheme that to do what the devil was asking him to do was testing God, not trusting God. Instead, Jesus says this, I trust my Father by faith without having to test God. It's not my place to test my Father. Seeing is not believing, but believing is seeing the truth and believing the truth because God said it. So Jesus is a son who walks by faith and not by sight. The last thing is this, that Jesus is a son who worships the true God and not false idols. A son who worships the true God and not false idols. Satan, in his last temptation, takes Jesus up to a high mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And maybe he does this in some sort of visionary way. We don't know exactly how he did that. But the point is, he shows him all this world and he drops all pretensions. And he blatantly says, all these I will give you if you will just fall down and worship me. Now, where is the temptation of Jesus in this? It's in this fact, brothers and sisters, that the Father had promised Jesus the kingdom of the world, the kingdoms of this world already. Psalm 2, verse 8, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. That's God the Father speaking to God the Son. Ask of me, Son, and I will give you the whole world as your inheritance. But the thing is this, the only way that that becomes his, the only way that the world becomes his in that sense for the God-man is by way of the cross. No cross, no crown. It's only by walking the path that the Father has already marked out for him, the path of suffering and death, 
that he would receive the kingdoms of this world as the God-man. But you see, Satan is trying to offer it to Jesus without going to the cross, without suffering. I'll give it to you. You just fall down and worship me, and it's all yours. Now, certainly, Jesus in his humanity desired to avoid suffering if possible. You remember what he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he said, Father, if possible, let this cup of suffering, the wrath that I'm going to have to undergo, let that pass, if possible. Again, Jesus is truly human. He did not enjoy suffering. So he certainly felt the temptation. But at what cost? What would it cost him to go and receive the kingdoms of this world without suffering on the cross? It would cost him exchanging the true God for a false God. Of breaking faith with his father. Of pledging allegiance to Satan. And if he had done so, all would be lost. You and I would never be saved from our sin. Sadly, Adam and Eve did just this. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to be, in essence, their own God. They set themselves up as gods. And in that sense, they created an idol. Israel sadly did the same thing. What did they do? When Moses is on the top of Mount Sinai and the people are at the bottom, well, God is covenanting with them and they've just made the promises in Exodus 24. In Exodus 32, they make the golden calf, an idol. They exchange the true God for a false God. And throughout their history, they would worship idols of the surrounding nations instead of the one true and living God. And sadly, you and I do the same thing. Anytime we love a created thing more than we love God, we've just made an idol. Every time we worship the creature instead of the creator, we've made an idol. Could be money, could be power, could be pleasure. It could be something that's good. You could exalt your spouse to a place that you love them more than God. That's making them into an idol. But Jesus did not yield to this temptation. Again, you see he quotes scripture and he's living it out. Notice verse 10. You, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. He proves himself to be the true son of God. He's saying this, I will worship God alone. And I will be obedient to Him, even unto death, even all the way to the cross. I am committed even now to obeying my Heavenly Father. Right after He resisted this temptation with the Word, by the power of the Spirit, notice verse 11 says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus resisted. He waited on God. And what happened? God provided. God sent angels to come and minister to him after he resisted that temptation. God the Father was faithful as well. So Jesus 
shows himself to be the Son of God, the faithful and obedient Son. What does that teach us then about what kind of Savior he is then? After all, Jesus, the Son of God, came to save his people from their sins, Matthew 1.21. So that's our last question briefly. What kind of Savior is this? And here I want to draw from a couple other passages in the book of Hebrews. What kind of Savior is this? First, he's a sinless Savior who's also a sympathetic Savior. He's a sinless Savior who's also a sympathetic Savior. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says this, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He is sinless. He never yielded to temptation for a moment. Not before this encounter, for those 30 years before, not in this encounter, and not after. He never yielded to sin, to temptation. And in fact, he had it throughout his life. Luke, Luke's account of this in, in his section ends by saying this, that Satan departed from him until an opportune time. The point being that Satan continued to come back and, and tempt Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. You can think of some of those different times. You remember how temptation came even through Peter. Right after, Peter makes the great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus then starts to tell them the purpose, his mission, is I must go to Jerusalem. There, I'm going to be rejected. There, I'm going to die and then be raised on the third day. And right after that, what does Peter say? Pulls Jesus aside. Never, Lord. May that never happen to you. And what is Jesus' response? Get behind me, Satan. Peter unwittingly was the mouthpiece of Satan by trying to say, Jesus, you don't need to go to the cross. Other times he was tempted on the cross itself. You remember how there was those passing by saying, if you're the son of God, prove it. Come off the cross. Tempting him. He was tempted throughout his earthly ministry, but throughout every time he was tempted, he resisted. He was steadfast. And why is that so vital? You see, it's vital for this. For Jesus as a Savior must fulfill all righteousness. In other words, he had to be a spotless Lamb of God. He had to have no sin so that he would have that righteousness that he earned to impute to our account. He also had to be a spotless Lamb of God so that He could be an acceptable sacrifice for our sins. If He had any sin, the sacrifice on the cross would mean nothing. He couldn't then pay for our sins because He would have to pay for His own. So He is a sinless Savior. But that doesn't mean that He is not sympathetic towards us, we who are sinners. He's also a sympathetic Savior. Some people ask, how is it if he never sinned that he could be sympathetic? Does he really understand the power of temptation that you and I face? And the answer is, yes, he understands it better than you do. You know why? Because he never gave in. You know what happens to us? Sometimes we feel a temptation. And it's a heavy temptation. And we resist Yet it still comes, and we still feel it. And sometimes it gets to a point where we give in. We sin. And after we sin, we don't feel 
the, the, the lure of it in the same way because we gave into it. Imagine never giving in. Jesus never gave in, which means he knows the full force of temptation in a way that you and I have never experienced because it just kept coming and coming and coming, that temptation, that tension, building and building for his whole life because he never gave in. So he understands the weight of temptation greater than you and I will ever understand it. Therefore, he can be sympathetic to you and to me in the midst of our temptation. And he can show us the way of escape. He can strengthen us. So he's a sinless Savior who is also a sympathetic Savior. But another answer to the question, what kind of Savior is this, is he's a suffering Savior who's our only sufficient Savior. Hebrews 2 verse 18 says this, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He suffered. He suffered in his humanity at each temptation throughout his whole life. There is a suffering in resisting the temptation, a suffering in having that assault upon him. He suffered, of course, supremely in the cross. There, taking upon himself the punishment for all of our sins, for all the times that we give in to temptation, the, the wrath of God that we deserve, the undiluted full strength of God's wrath for all of the sins of God's people. You see, each time Jesus said no to Satan, he said yes to the cross. He suffered. But that makes him a Savior and the only Savior of sinners, the only sufficient Savior. A Savior who can save us, yes, from the penalty of our sins, through our justification. We are no longer guilty. We are declared righteous. But He's also able to save us from the power of sin by our sanctification. You see, at the cross, He defeated Satan. Therefore, we can resist Him. And He has given to us His Word and His Spirit so that we, just like Jesus there, by the Word and Spirit, resisted temptation, resisted Satan. He enables us to do so because He has been given the gift of the Spirit that He has now poured out upon His church. So we too are filled with the Spirit and enabled by His grace to resist temptation. And He's given to us His Word. Not only that, Jesus is ever living at the right hand of the Father to intercede for us. This very moment, Jesus is praying for you. Do you realize that? He is praying for you. You remember how he said to Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And when you return, strengthen your brethren. Jesus is praying for you that you would resist the temptations. And not only that, one day, one day, He will save us completely from the presence of sin. When He returns, He will destroy all those who refuse to repent and all of those who do, who have repented, who bow the knee to Him. He will gather together His lambs, His sheep, and usher us into the new heavens, the new earth, a place 
where there will be no sin. We ourselves will be perfected, have no remaining sin. The world which we live in will have no sin in it, and no sin can enter into it. He is a sufficient Savior, isn't He? A glorious Savior. And the concluding question is this, how should you respond to such a Savior? Well, if you're one who's already trusting in Christ, then this is how you should respond. Since you have such a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, hold fast to your confession of faith. Hold fast to Christ, your Savior. Don't let it go. Don't let your faith wane. Hold fast to Christ. Not only that, the writer of Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. If you are one who trusts in Christ, and this Christ is your Savior, draw near to Him every day to the throne of grace, trying out for the mercy and grace you need to walk through the wilderness of this world. Because your Savior will hear with a sympathetic ear and answer. But if you're here this afternoon and you're not someone who's in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not a Christian, then how you respond to such a Savior is this, come to Him by faith. Because he's promised that all those who come to him by faith in no wise will he cast them out. He will receive all who come to him. Let him be your champion. Because I promise you, if you try to face the world, the flesh, and the devil on your own, you will fail. Just like Adam. Just like Israel. But there is one who has triumphed, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you come to him and bow your knee before this king, he will be your champion to defeat your sin, to defeat Satan on your behalf. And you will be liberated from the dark bondage of sin and Satan to enter into the glory of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our Father in heaven, what a God you are. What amazing salvation you have wrought for us. Salvation planned in eternity, executed by the Son in space-time history, and applied to your people now. And Lord, we ask that this Spirit of God would work in our own midst, continue to apply this word to our own hearts. We who are your, your children, strengthen our faith. Give us the mercy and help that we need today, each day this week. Lord, would you convert those in our midst who do not know you. Bring them the new birth. Bring them saving faith in Christ. Help them to come to the one who is the king over all kings and bow the knee to King Jesus. We ask it for the glory and honor of your name. Amen.